0: But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as as we each come to it with our own uh, presuppositions, our own biases, um, some of us with baggage, some of us just with pain, we pray that you would speak into our situations, pray that you would speak right where we are. We desperately need to hear a word from you this morning, so we pray that you would give us exactly what we need. And would you help us, by your grace, through your spirit, to leave this place and not merely be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. i got to be honest with you. uh, I was not looking forward to this little section in Galatians. I've, I've been looking forward to Galatians for a while now, preaching through it. It's such a rich book. Um, we are centering ourselves on the gospel, and there is no better book in the Bible to walk through than Galatians when you're you're trying to do that. But this little section here, from Galatians 1.11 all the way really until Galatians two fourteen, I wasn't looking forward to that section mainly because it's a little boring to me. Oh, okay, so just to be honest, I know the preacher just said the Bible's boring. I you know just forget that if it gives you trouble. Um, but think about what is awaiting us in Galatians, okay? For example, Galatians 2.16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. I mean, we could, we could have three or four sermons on that one verse. Okay, think about Galatians 2.20. I actually used it, man, when I, when I really started being a cool Christian, like early college, I got this uh, uh, necklace. It was like a cross, and it, had, it was like black, and it had Galatians 2.20 on the back of it. I felt so holy when I wore that thing, man. Like, it was, it was awesome. But I love the verse. I love the verse. As weird as that was, I love the verse. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me now think about Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us I mean you got you all want to tweet these verses some of you probably already are tweeting these verses you know you want to you put these on Instagram Galatians 3:28 even. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. An entire sermon series on that one verse. All right? And then Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Galatians 5, 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians six fourteen 14. the last one I'll, I'll give you, but from each of the chapters that, that are awaiting us. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Such deep, rich gospel truths are w- awaiting us. And here's what's in the way. Our passage this morning, Galatians 1, 11 through 24. This is what's going through my mind as I begin my study. I mean, think about it. You have those verses, and then we have this. I did not consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Mmm, mmm. That's rich right there. Um, then, you know, the next verse. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. Amen, fifteen days with Cephas. I, I don't know. Um, and then my favorite, my favorite. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this one. You know, I'm gonna post this later. Galatians one twenty one, baby. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Ooh. Rich, right? Right, just rich. I know, you guys, like, for some reason, you're probably not going to tweet these verses. Uh, but that's what we come to. It's so profound. But w- what I will say, so this is why I was just like, oh man, let's, let's just get through these, this passage so we can get to the good stuff. Uh, as I was studying this week, I was deeply challenged by a couple ideas that dominate this passage. And that's, I want to show this to you this morning, but really, I, I want to begin... Um, by asking you a question, it's a question that we can't easily answer just in one morning. Um, it's a question that probably requires a lot of reflection, but you can write down an answer if, if you think you, you may have one. What would it take for Tupelo to know that Jesus is real? That's a big question. That's a deep question. R- write it down if, if you take notes. What would it take for Tupelo? to know that Jesus is real. Now, of course, on God's side of things, on God's side of things, I know all of you guys that read systematic theology books, you've already given your answer, but on God's side of things, the only way that's gonna happen is if he moves, okay? The only way Tupelo will know that Jesus is real is if the Holy Spirit works powerfully and graciously to reveal Jesus to our city, okay? Of course, on God's side of things. What about on our side of things? What would it take for Tupelo to know that Jesus is real and what is our role in that? A billboard, a book, clever video, social media campaign, those car decals, you guys know what I'm talking about, the car decals, um, T-shirts, just come up with a clever like T-shirt. Or maybe we just post, Jesus is real on a T-shirt and we just like wear it all over the city. Maybe we could all get those printed up and wear them. More seriously, maybe we need to invest more study, more time, more resources in apologetics to know how we can better contend for the gospel's validity. We definitely need to know our city very well. You know who actually lives here. What what are are the people who live here? What do they believe? What what are the particular stumbling blocks to the gospel in our city? And we definitely need to get off our butts and evangelize more, right? And as good and necessary as some of those answers are, they are not the answers that we can draw from our passage today. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does help us answer the question, though, what would it take for Tupelo to know that Jesus is real? And his answer is simple. For Tupelo to know Jesus is real, Tupelo needs to see Jesus in us. That's his answer in this passage. For Tupelo to know Jesus is real, Tupelo needs to see Jesus in us. So Paul is writing to the Galatians, we've seen the last two weeks, to persuade them away from a false gospel, a false belief system, a false worldview that they had been taught, that they had been lured into and back to the true gospel of God's grace. And as we saw last week, he's just rebuked anyone, whether it's himself, the false teachers that, that had entered Galatia, or even an angel from heaven. He rebukes anyone who would preach a gospel that's different from the one that he had preached to them initially. And following that rebuke, Paul writes in Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So what Paul's saying here is that any alternative to the gospel he preached is a counterfeit gospel. There is a gospel that is true, and then any other gospel, any other worldview is false. So if Paul's goal then was to further demonstrate that his gospel was real, what would we expect him to say next? He set the stage perfectly for an apologetic sermon here. Perfectly. He said, there is a true gospel, and you have heard a false gospel. There is this clear difference between the two. And we almost expect him next, I do anyway, to get into the specifics quickly, okay? To share the nature of what man's gospel is and what not man's gospel is. I expect him to say something like immediately here, it's not salvation by works of the law, but it's salvation through Christ alone. But he doesn't get into that until later into chapter 2. I expect him here... I expect him here to say something about the nature of God's free grace in Christ. To make an apologetic argument that his gospel is true. But that's not what he does. Instead, Paul's apologetic, his defense... the divine source of the gospel is to share his own story. Paul's conversion and calling become his initial argument for the divine nature and power of the gospel. So think, think about what he does here as he explains his story and it feels boring to us at times as we read it. Paul is saying, in order to argue for the legitimacy of the gospel, I have to share my testimony with them. It feels feels strange to us, okay? But Paul is essentially saying, I shouldn't be here. Let me tell you about myself here. I shouldn't be here. I have become something that I never would have desired. I never could have planned for myself. I am a Jesus follower, an apostle, and a preacher of the gospel because God stepped in, God stooped down, and he intervened in my life. Christ, as the captain of my soul, has reversed my course in life. Paul was a living example of the counterintuitive power of the gospel. And his experience of grace was his evidence for the gospel. You want to know how I know the gospel is real? You want to know how I know that it's true? Listen to what it's done to me. The gospel is clearest when it's seen in a person. That's when it's clearest, not when it's seen. Not, not when it's seen in a, in a book that someone's written to try to defend the gospel. It's clearest when it's seen in a person because when you see the gospel in a person, when you see Jesus in a person, you see it with your own eyes. It's tangible. You, 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 can, you can touch it. You, you can understand it. It makes sense to you. Jesus followers, you and I, we make the abstract truth of the gospel concrete. We are the best example that God's grace is real and his gospel is true and I can feel some discomfort from some of you at this point where's he going next I know some of you are probably wanting to roll your eyes for a second and some of you may be thinking I know what he's about to quote and I'm going to get up and walk out of here if he does he's about to say preach the gospel and if necessary use words I know, I know you're thinking that that's where I'm going with this I'm not okay I'm not, I'm not going there but what I am saying is that Paul, the great preacher of the gospel who used many words in this portion of his letter to the Galatians, uses himself as an argument to verify the truth of the gospel. And, and my claim for us this morning is if our city is going to know that Jesus is real, it's going to require at least partially for them to see God's grace at work in us. Now some of you may be taking a totally different route and you may be thinking at this point, if I am the best example of the gospel for my lost friends and family, then they are in serious trouble, okay? If I'm, if I'm the best example. Or, or you may be thinking that this just feels too subjective, too emotionally driven, or too emotionally dependent. And and we're right to believe that no matter how we currently feel, the gospel is what it is. And no matter how we behave, no matter if we're a good or bad example of the gospel, the gospel is an objective reality, an objective truth that we cannot change. We saw that last week. And we should spend much time sharing the clear and unchanging content of the gospel, that we are sinners and that Jesus is the Savior who has saved us through his life, death, and resurrection. But something that just jumped out to me this week The gospel is not trapped in the pages of a book. It's it's not trapped in a book, nor is it merely lodged into our brains. When we believe the gospel, when we trust Jesus, we believe that something actually happens to us from the inside out. Of course we are justified, of course we are forgiven, and we cannot change that at all, but God also begins a work in us that he will one day slowly but surely complete. By his grace, God begins To change us into the very image of his son. So the gospel is not just a message we believe. The gospel is powerful. It redefines our identity. It recalibrates our loves. And it reorients our lives. So the power of the gospel is seen in us. It's seen in our lives. Paul knew this. Paul knew, before I go any further before I open the scriptures and I make these arguments from the Old Testament, before I make any theological argument, I need to share my own story. One of his best arguments for the validity of the gospel was his own life, and the same is true for you and for me and for our church. Our goal as a church in pursuing spiritual maturity as we seek to shape and send disciples who love God and who love others is to show the world that Jesus is real, that Jesus is real. His gospel is real. How amazing would it be if we could testify to the truth of the gospel simply by saying, look at us. Look at us. We should not be here. Look at what God has done. See what God is doing. We could never do this ourselves. What if that Was how we testified to the validity and the power of the gospel. Paul's life had become a surprise, and that should be the story of every Christian in this room. Saving grace surprises us, it works in us in ways that we could not plan, it works through us in ways that we could not create. The gospel is not man's gospel, Paul says, it is God's gospel. Which means that those of us who believe in God's gospel are examples of God's amazing, surprising grace. I think, of, I think of myself. I can say with Paul, I, I should not be here. You know where I should be? Just on, on the positive side of things, where I should be. On the positive side of things, where, where I should be. I should be a pharmacist at a pharmacy in southeastern Kentucky. That was my plan. That, that was my plan in college. I got halfway there. I, I got halfway there. And then the Lord intervened, and he had other ideas. He had other plans for me. And now I find myself standing and preaching what I hope is not too long of a sermon on a Sunday morning in Tupelo, Mississippi. I would not be here if I was the one who was making the plans for my life, or if my life depended on my abilities, or my life depended on my desires and on my wisdom. But what Paul is saying here is, I know the gospel is true, and I know the gospel is real, because I have firsthand experienced what happens when God touches a person with his grace? So let's consider Paul's story briefly, all right? He, he basically breaks it down into two ways. Paul shares how he was saved, and then he shares how he was called. He talks about his salvation. He talks about his calling. And what we, can, what we can draw from this is that there are two main ways that we can showcase the reality of Jesus in our city. And that's first to testify to God's saving grace and second to live according to God's saving grace. All right, so, so first, how, how was Paul saved? We see that in verses 11 through 15, especially 13 through 15. So let's look at 13 through 15 together. Paul writes, "'For you have heard.'" Of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Okay, so the first thing what we need to see here is that Paul was saved on the basis of God's grace, not on the basis of his good behavior. And we can apply that to ourselves. God saves sinners on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of our behavior. And isn't it just so tempting for us to believe that we can save ourselves? even for Christians in this room. Because remember, who's Paul writing to here? Paul is writing to Christians. They have already believed the gospel, but they need to be reminded of this. They need to be corrected, and so do we. We are saved on the basis of God's grace, not on the basis of our behavior. But it's tempting to believe that we can save ourselves, that surely we must contribute something to our salvation that we are the ones in debt to God, and so we should be the ones who have to make the payment. We should have to pay that debt off. Judaism and Islam both work this way, okay? And there are a couple quotes here I wanted to share. There's one from Judaism from the uh, Talmud, and it reads like this. The prayer of the righteous reversed the decisions of the Holy One from the attribute of anger to the attribute of mercy. All right, and then we read from the Quran. God loves those who do good. God does not love evildoers. He will give his grace to everyone who has merit. Most, if not all of the world's religions have some element of religious performance embedded. But even those of us who grew up in the church are prone to believe in a spiritual transaction, that if we are good, God will be good to us. If we obey God, then he will bless us. If we love God, he will love us. If we're faithful to God, he'll be faithful to us. And so what happens there is that God is constantly responding to us and treating us with mercy or discipline on the basis of our behavior. But this is man's gospel. This is not God's gospel. In man's gospel, you earn grace. You deserve blessing. You can turn God from anger to mercy on the basis of your faithfulness or your behavior. And we're prone to think this way. And that's why Paul wrote this letter for us. To remind us that the gospel is something that we receive from God himself. And Paul uses his life as an example here. Look look at verse 14. Verse 13, really. He starts in verse 13 and starts talking about his own journey. Paul uses his own life as an example to show that his salvation and God's acceptance of him are based on God's grace, God's initiative, rather than his own. Paul wasn't supposed to be a follower of Jesus. You notice that from his story? He wasn't supposed to be a preacher of the gospel or an apostle. Paul was a promising Jewish theologian, okay? Um, And he was also a devastating persecutor of the church. He destroyed Christians, he destroyed churches, and he was an up-and-coming, promising Jewish theologian. He was at the top of his class. He was confident in his convictions, and he was content to continue advancing in Judaism. So why did Paul all of a sudden become a follower of the one that he was seeking to destroy. Why did he all of a sudden become a Christian? Well, it's not because he finally studied enough and figured out that, oh, what I'm currently believing is wrong and now I know what's right. It's, it's not because he finally gained enough knowledge. Paul became a follower of Jesus not because he finally found Jesus through his research, but because Jesus found him. Look at verse 15. And notice, notice from verse 14 to verse 15 how the subject of the sentences change, okay? In verse 14, Paul's status in Judaism was based on his work, okay? He says, I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy the church. I was advancing in Judaism. I was zealous. And then you move to verse 15, and he says, this is what happened to me. I stopped working. God did something, He says, but when he, who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul says that his status as a Christian was something that God did for him. God set him apart before he was born. No contribution from Paul. God called him by his grace. No contribution from Paul. God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. No contribution from this man. Paul's zeal for law obedience as the means of salvation, his zeal to defend Judaism and to destroy the Jesus movement, collided with God's amazing, relentless, and life-changing grace. Paul had nothing to do with his salvation. God set him apart. God called him. God revealed Jesus to him. Paul wasn't asking for God's mercy in Jesus. Paul didn't deserve God's mercy because he was a really good Jew. Paul was on the way to destroy more of Jesus' followers, and in that moment, God's grace and God's mercy found him. So, Paul's gospel is real and true because it's not just a message that he heard, it's power that he experienced. Paul experienced a miracle of God's grace. And that's the story of every single person who's in Christ in this room. You experienced a miracle of God's grace. And yes, if, you, if you're not a Christian in this room, God can save even someone like you because he saved even someone like Paul. You may think that you're not a good candidate for salvation or for Christianity. You may feel totally unworthy of the God of the universe. And if you feel guilty and you feel hopeless, if you feel unworthy or you feel dirty, you need to know today that it's good that you feel that way because you are actually very very close to God, because our God draws near to sinners. If you are a sinner, you're a perfect candidate for God's saving grace. Because we're saved on the basis of God's grace, not our effort. You're not miles away from finally being accepted by God if you are in the depths of your sin, because God is not waiting on you to get to him. He comes to you. So, stop working your spiritual fingers to the bone, to try to earn God's favor come to Jesus believe in him and find rest for your soul he has done all that needs to be done for you to be saved and God will surprise you with how he meets you in the depths of your sin and if you're a Christian today that's your story that's your story and this is the story that we tell We share with others who we once were outside of Christ and who we now are in Christ. We share of the transforming work of God in our lives. And as we tell our story, who's the subject? God, Jesus. Jesus is the subject of our testimony. We say, this is the road I was on, but God stepped in. He met me with his grace, and each day he meets me afresh with his grace. And we can say, I know the gospel is true, and I know Jesus is real, because I've experienced both firsthand. Um, But for Paul, what we see here is that God's grace does not stop at conversion. That's huge, right? That's huge. That Paul, by no effort of his own, solely because God is kind and God is gracious— Paul finds himself in a relationship with this God. Paul finds himself caught up in the being of God himself. He is reconciled to God and has peace with God and will have eternal life with God. Is that not enough? That is plenty for us to to rejoice in. But God's grace doesn't stop at conversion. God's grace never stops working in us. It never stops working through us. God is never finished with us, and he wasn't finished with Paul on the road to Damascus, okay? We didn't experience God's grace at conversion never to experience it again. Our entire lives are of grace, and the God who saves us by his grace calls us by his grace and will use us for his glory, okay? So if we are saved, and we just saw how Paul is saved, it's by Grace on the basis of God's grace, Paul then shares how he was used by God. So, how can we be used by God? How can we show that Jesus is real through our calling as Christians? Paul shares that for us at the end of verse 16, all the way through the end of this chapter. Here's what he writes. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained within 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. What does it mean for us to be used by God? How does God use us in his kingdom? Well, there's actually one question that I reflected on this week as I thought about this. As I thought about my own calling as as a minister of the gospel, how different would my life be if I were not a Christian? If tomorrow, just as a hypothetical, if tomorrow you became an atheist or Buddhist or Muslim, what would you stop doing? If your convictions changed and you were no longer a follower of Jesus, what about your life would actually change? I'm actually troubled by that question. Is my life dictated by the grace and lordship of Jesus or am I just living however I want while throwing in some religious duty? Um, if I stop believing in Jesus tomorrow but it wouldn't make any difference in how I'm living my life I might not be believing in Jesus today if, if the grace of God that I'm believing in isn't changing my life at all if I'm not doing things differently because I believe in Jesus have I actually experienced his grace? Like, that question troubles me Um, so we need to consider two things here that paul shares paul essentially says god has used even someone like me so what was the means that god used to use paul and and what's the goal the means is god's grace once again this is a chapter this is a book that is saturated with the grace of god Paul shares his story as one who used to be a persecutor of Christians who has now become a preacher of the gospel to say anyone can be used by God to accomplish his glorious purposes because the means that God uses to accomplish his glorious purposes is his grace through his people. So notice Paul's description of his movements in ministry. The reason Paul's even saying this is is probably that his opponents in Galatia were challenging Paul's authority they were essentially saying who is this Paul and what right does he have to come to you to preach this gospel his gospel is wrong because this man is not valid his gospel is not valid because he is not valid who is Paul anyway to them Paul was a rogue okay And why would you trust the message of a rogue? Why would you trust someone who didn't even carry the seal of the other apostles? He didn't have the approval of the Jerusalem church. So so why would you believe Paul's gospel? He's unqualified. He's unprepared. He's uneducated. He's a newcomer. This is the guy who was killing Christians, and you're going to trust him? They tried to discredit Paul. That's what we can infer from, from what Paul writes here. Have you ever felt that way? I don't know, like, have you found yourself not making disciples? And maybe as I ask that question, how would your life change? Maybe it scared you and you're like, I don't know that anything about my life would change. Because I don't know what impact Jesus is actually having on my life. But do you feel that way because maybe you actually feel unqualified or unprepared or uneducated or too inexperienced or too unworthy to be used by God to make disciples? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm sure thankful that God saved me, but I'm certain he can't use someone like me? I'm glad he saved me, but he can't use me. If you have, you need to hear what Paul's actually doing here. You need to see what he's doing. Paul is defending himself, not for the sake of his reputation, but for the sake of maintaining an audience with the Galatians. He wants them to keep hearing him and to keep believing that his gospel is true. So, how does Paul defend himself? He does it in the most surprising way ever. He agrees with the accusations. He agrees. He he affirms it. He he affirms that the apostles did not have influence on him, that the apostles had not taught him. He affirms that the Jerusalem church had not sent him out or ordained him. Paul affirms that he was not well connected in the life of the church at the time. He kind of said, I am kind of a rogue, a little bit. Paul affirms that he did not follow precedent, that he is an outlier, and that he's an outsider, that he's new to this whole thing. At the time that Paul was sent to preach to the Gentiles, he had no credentials to stand on, no Christian credentials, no endorsements from fellow apostles, and no support from the church. In fact, as we've seen, as Paul confesses here, he was a religious terrorist, and Christians everywhere feared Paul. But that's what makes his calling and God's use of him so remarkable and so astounding. That's why the Galatians actually can trust him. You see how he's turning the argument on its head? They're saying you shouldn't trust me because of all these reasons. I'm saying you should trust me. Because of all those same reasons. Because the reason that I am here preaching the gospel to you is not because I have authority from any other person. It's not because I'm well-connected and they sent me out and I'm well-liked by other people in the church. I'm here for one reason only. God has been gracious to me. It's God's grace. God's grace is the only reason that Paul is who he is and he is where he is. God's use of Paul in his kingdom is not based on any human credentials or merit, but on his divine grace. Paul didn't deserve to be a steward of such glorious mysteries, but God used him anyway. Do you need to hear that this morning? Maybe you're thinking, I don't deserve for God to use me. I'm not going to disagree with that, because I would say that of myself. I don't deserve to be able to stand before you and preach the gospel, but God's using me anyway, and God will use you anyway. So there are two takeaways here. The first is, don't underestimate what God can do in you and through you don't underestimate it because it's all based on his all-powerful grace the basis of Paul's calling and ministry was God's grace so God doesn't call us and use us to advance the kingdom on the basis of our talents our gifts our resources connections education or personality God calls each one of us to advance the kingdom through disciple making on the basis of his of his grace so God isn't waiting on you to gain enough knowledge, earn enough religious clout, or attain a certain level of holiness before he can use you for his purposes. He's not waiting on you to get it all together. Everyone who has experienced God's saving grace in the gospel possesses God's sending grace that comes through the gospel. Paul preached the gospel not because he had been trained well in a seminary, but because God himself had called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So if you are to be used by God, it will be by his grace. Now, of course, of course, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot here. We will and should grow in our knowledge and we should grow in holiness. And the more we grow as a Christian, the better we will contend for the gospel and live out the gospel. But it will be by God's grace that carries us all the way. So first, don't underestimate what God can can do through you. Second, As God uses us, as you fulfill your ministry here at Trace Crossing in our city and to the nations, rely on God's grace, not your effort as you do ministry. If we can do a bunch of church stuff without God's grace, and by the way, it's possible. Churches do it all the time. Um, If we can just throw a bunch of stuff on a calendar and seem really busy as a church, apart from God's grace, We're wasting our time, okay? If the reach of our church is limited by the human experience, education, and talents in this room, then I know this sounds negative, but we will have a relatively short reach. If the reach doesn't go further than how talented and gifted and resourceful that we are, we're not gonna be able to reach very many people because I know how limited I am. But God's grace is limitlessly powerful. He can do more in us than we could ever plan or dream. So our church, our ministries, our homes then should be soaked in prayer. Okay, we should never begin a new ministry, start a new missions partnership, go on a mission trip, do equipping classes, start life groups, our services in our own power. How can we make sure that we're not doing it in our own power? We have, to, we have to saturate every single thing that we do in prayer. We are free to dream big for the gospel's impact in this city and to the nations through our church. We're free to dream big that way when we are relying on God's grace as the fuel. So since God uses us on the basis of his grace, which is endless and all-powerful, God can use you no matter how useless you feel. Imagine how useless Paul felt when he first encountered Jesus. How weak he felt. God uses us in spite of our weakness. And do you know what will happen when he does? And when we're faithful to rely on his grace and follow his calling? When we do that, when that happens, the world witnesses a miracle of God's grace, and they will glorify god i want you to look at the last two verses in galatians 1 this is the goal if god uses us on the basis of his grace and with the means of his grace he does it for the purpose of his glory look at verse 23 so paul had just said hey y'all are right um i those churches in judea they you know i'm still unknown in person They haven't actually met me face to face. They've only heard about me. Listen to this impact. Listen to this outcome. They, They heard something about me. Verse 23, they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what's that next verse say? And they glorified God because of me. God works in us to display his glory. God's glory shines in us when we live in his grace. When we're depending on his grace, relying on his grace for everything we do as a church, his glory shines in us. God had worked in Paul to make him a persecutor turned preacher. And that's all that other Christians in Judea and all the other apostles had really heard of Paul. All they heard was that Paul the persecutor who hated Christ and his church had become a preacher of Christ and a planter of churches. That's that's all they heard about Paul. They heard of the miracle of God's grace in and through Paul and they responded by glorifying God. So as the world sees broken, weak sinners like us loving the God we once hated and loving others, self-denial and self-sacrifice they will marvel at what god is doing in and through us because our testimony will be we could never do this ourselves we could never do this ourselves they won't be able to look at our abilities or our strengths because we know that all we do for the kingdom is God's grace working in us and through us. The longer we follow Jesus individually and together as a faith family, the more desperate we will be for his grace. Because as you grow as a Christian, you start to see just how weak you are and how dependent you are on God's grace. So if we want to make a difference in Tupelo for the sake of God's glory, we must follow the Lord's lead. We must change what doesn't align with his will and we must reorder our entire lives if necessary to showcase the power of his grace in us. And when we do that, when we do that, when we actually start walking by and in the grace of God and testifying to what he is doing in us, the real Jesus will shine. And our city will see. As as we're shaping each other into the image of Christ, what are they going to see when they look at us? They're going to see the image of Christ. They're going to see and they're going to know that this Jesus is real. So negatively, the day that we ever get to a point when we can just be busy with church activities without the need for God's grace will be the day that we stop glorifying God and effectively deny the very gospel we're proclaiming. But the day that we begin or continue depending on God's grace to work in us and then in response to that grace we orient our lives and our church on his grace and his word and his will that'll be the day that God's glory will shine through us. In just a couple minutes um, we're going to respond by singing Amazing Grace. Which is a very appropriate song. Michelle and I both, like almost simultaneously, were like, we gotta sing Amazing Grace this Sunday. Um, Amazing Grace was a hymn, a great hymn, historic hymn, written by John Newton. Uh, John Newton was an 18th century pastor. Um, But before he was a pastor, before he was a Christian, John Newton, the great Christian hymn writer, was a slave trader. Um, But God's grace found John Newton and changed him forever. Uh, John Newton wrote a letter to a friend once and he described his conversion. It's it's so eerily similar to Galatians one. Here's what John Newton wrote. I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared. And though banished into the wilds of Africa, where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves, I was by a series of providences little less than miraculously recovered from that house of bondage and at length appointed to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. Now, shortly before John Newton died, he wrote his own epitaph. And he wanted it inscribed on plain marble. He didn't want any monuments or any other inscriptions there. His desire was that the grace of God in his life be on full display. And this is what it read. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton was a powerful argument for the truth and the power of the gospel and how God's grace changes a person. So we have two choices as we leave this place. We will either be a great or a terrible argument for the truth of the gospel. We will either demonstrate to our city that Jesus is real or that Jesus is a counterfeit. If we live superficial, hypocritical lives, we will make a strong case that the gospel we believe is a fraud. But if we walk according to the grace that saved us, we will be shaped into the image of Christ and we will demonstrate that Jesus and his gospel are very, very real. I hope that's your prayer as it is mine. Let me pray for us as Michelle comes to lead us. Father, thank you so much for your saving and your sanctifying grace.